You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. And we were recalling before that the first time Hannah and I met was when she was on her visit day at Poli Sci and came in to chat at Krika. So um, it's just wonderful to have you back. Um, Hannah is Bakarin and Adid Dawisha, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Miami University and a faculty associate at the Havinghurst Center for Russian and Post-Soviet Studies. Um, her research examines political participation, information management, and public opinion in Russia and the former Soviet Union. And in addition to her Krika talk today, Hannah also gave a presentation last night for the Madison Committee on Foreign Relations. And so we at Krika are grateful to NCFR and also to International Division for uh, underwriting your visit to your alma mater. So please give us, uh, join me in giving Hannah a warm Wisconsin, welcome back. Thank you, everyone. And it, it's really, truly a delight to be back. This is one of my first work trips since COVID. Um, so the fact that it is in one of my favorite cities uh, and the entire world is just a truly a delight. So thank you all for coming here today. And so the presentation that I'm going to be giving today is going to be discussing my book project, which has this mouthful of a name, which I'm shopping around names, so if you have any great ideas, let me know, um, that looks at how non-democracies manage participation and their consequences for regime durability. So today, nearly every country in the world promotes some form of civic engagement and participation in politics, and this can take a variety of different forms. In Russia, for example, every year, as many of us know, uh, they hold a program called the Direct Line with Vladimir Putin, a call-in show where people can essentially, for all intents and purposes, pick up the phone and talk with Putin directly live on the air. For those of you familiar with Latin America, this Direct Line program may seem very eerily reminiscent of a similar program in Venezuela under Hugo Chavez called Allo Presidente. And this was a weekly call-in show where people would come and speak with Chavez about issues and concerns that they have and consult about everything from policy to literally there have been showing cows on this program at one point. Um, if you're ever interested in just surfing around on YouTube on Friday night and looking what to watch, uh, you'll have a fun time if you want to check out this program. In Kazakhstan as well, they have a very sophisticated electronic government system that has uh, where people can write in with appeals, complain about different problems they have, give feedback on um, government policies, and otherwise just speak directly with um, officials from all types of different ministries at all different levels. And China also has a number of these different programs, everything from the Letters and Visits Office to mayor's mailboxes, and my personal favorite, this program called Share Your Thoughts with Premier Li, 
where as you can see here, people can electronically send in their ideas and questions and it is uh, sent directly to Premier Lee who opens them and reads them live on the air. And these are all examples of what I call in my book participatory technologies. And participatory technologies are just elite mass communication strategies that are specifically designed to foster some type of direct interaction between citizens and their leaders. And as I showed you, these uh, participatory technologies are used widely around the world today. But their proliferation in authoritarian regimes in particular has not resulted in the consolidation of democracy as some early observers had predicted. Rather, they have become instruments of authoritarian control. So observing this phenomenon, this led me to ask mainly two research questions that has driven this project. First, why do autocrats bother spending the time and the resources to develop these channels of communication and participation? So essentially, what are they trying to achieve? And then second, given these goals, are these tools actually effective? Do they work? and if so, under what conditions? But in order to answer these questions, we kind of have to take a step back and consider the types of challenges that authoritarian regimes face from below, that is from the masses, the general public. And two of the most onerous challenges that all authoritarian regimes face are managing information and building legitimacy. So let's go through each of these very briefly. First, accurate, free-flowing information is a necessary condition for long-term regime stability. The more information that governments have about society, the more able that they are to identify any areas of concerns or problems before discontent boils over and becomes challenging to the regime. But in non-democracies, where is, there is always this implicit threat of repression and coercion, people are not necessarily incentivized to be truthful about their actual attitudes and views. And for this reason, you know, it's, we often say that authoritarian regimes can appear very stable right up until the point they are not. The second problem authoritarian regimes have to contend with from below is building legitimacy. That is essentially convincing people that the existing order is right and proper, to use Lipset's terminology. And regimes have, when regimes have higher levels of legitimacy, they face lower risks of protest and popular rebellion um, from the citizenry who generally is more accepting of their rule. And of course, these two problems are very closely intertwined. Building engaging views and positive perceptions of the government requires a very detailed knowledge about what people want. Excuse me. <laughs> But without information about society, it's really difficult to make decisions that are going to increase legitimacy. So this is kind of a dual looping problem. So the question then becomes, how do autocrats balance between this need for information on one hand and popular support on the other? And what I argue in my book is that participatory technologies serve as one of the tools in the authoritarian playbook. 
And the main argument of the book, so all 200 pages right here, um, is that essentially by providing opportunities for non-electoral participation in what are otherwise closed political systems, participatory technologies strengthen the flow of vertical information between citizens and their leaders and vice versa. Furthermore, it allows the government to demonstrate to citizens that the authorities actually care about their needs and concerns in the general mood of society. And participatory technologies are particularly useful in this regard as one of the menu of manipulation because they give authorities a lot of control over essentially what participation looks like in their country. And they do so without a lot of the constraints of more formal institutions like, say, elections or legislatures. So they're what Lucier would call elite enabling institutions. They allow elites a lot of leeway. And finally, by promoting such strategies, autocrats encourage the masses to believe that they have a genuine role in the political process, that citizens have the opportunity, should they wish to take advantage of this, to talk with the government about their needs and concerns while still controlling the means and the content of communication. So this book is based off about 20 months of fieldworks that I conducted in Russia and in Kazakhstan over, what, seven years, eight years then? Um, I, and during my initial rounds of fieldwork, I uh, conducted around 50 or so interviews to help me build this theory that I just described. I then, after I had my theory built, I went and I returned um, to do additional interviews and ended up citing about 48 of these that I did, along with three focus groups. Additionally, I focus on a detailed case study of Russia that looks specifically at this direct line in quite detail. And I finally uh, use and substantiate my arguments with two original surveys with embedded experiments. So today I'm not going to go through all of that. Rather, my goal is to kind of give you a broad overview of some of the main arguments of the book. And so first I'm going to briefly examine some of the different types and varieties of participatory technologies that exist, particularly in Russia today, before looking at how they can help authoritarian regimes manage information and build legitimacy, these two problems that I just laid out for you. So, as I kind of explained a bit earlier, participatory technologies can take a number of different types of forms. The first one of these that I identify are appeals systems. Now, I think it's really important to point out that though I use the word technology in here, I use technology more in the sense of innovation rather than wires and computers and the like. Because these strategies of participation are not a new phenomenon, right? We have seen them in Russia, for example, as far back in the 12th century with the ideas and programs of petitioning the czar. So this is no longer new. So as some of you might recognize, this is a workman's petition to the czar um, that was uh, given to the czar on Bloody Sunday. So it's been around for a very long time. In the Soviet Union, this took the form more of complaint systems. And much more recently, we have these online appeal systems where people can go onto their computer or open an app on their phone and lodge complaints and make the recommendations to authorities. Two of these today are Dobrodel, which is uh, Moscow regions, 
Upkill system and Nashkord, which is actually the city, uh, Moscow has their own as well. So as a follow-up to the book, um, I am going to dive into these two programs. Uh, they uh, basically make all of the information uh, about them available, and so this is going to be kind of the next step after I finally get the book off of my plate. The next variety or type of participatory technology are public consultations. And so these are specifically forums where uh, people are allowed to provide feedback on, you know, public laws, draft regulations, and basically just talk about their issues in the public domain. The most famous and well-known of these in Russia is, of course, the Civic Chamber, which acts as kind of an intermediary where people can come and say, you know, here are my issues, here are the problems, recommendations for the government, and they act as people's um, intermediary to the federal authorities. There's also been a number of uh, different forms of these that have come and gone. Um, started with a program called the Open Government Initiative that never really took off. And there's since been a number of different new ones, including the Federal Portal of Draft Regulations and the Public Initiative Portal, where people can essentially go on, click the issues that they want to give feedback on, and either vote on particular initiatives or tell people how it, they should be revised. And the final of these that I look at are government blogs and call-in shows. So government blogs really had their heyday during Medvedev's presidency. As we all know, he was the cool new tech guy that came in, and he really pushed regional governors and municipal authorities to build their own interactive blogs where they would have constant contact with citizens on the ground. When Putin returned to the presidency, you know, as a very well-known technophobe, he kind of pushed these to the <laughs> side, but rather reinstated in some cases or continued his own version of this, the call-in show, which has become and has pretty much always been the most popular and well-known of these. And of course, of all the call-in shows, you have to focus on the direct line, right? So the direct line, as many of you I'm sure are very well aware, began all the way back in 2001 and has continued essentially every year to this day. It's only missed three times, 2004, 2012, and 2020. Um, and I'd be happy to talk about why in the Q&A. And the, the direct line is staged, as you can see here, as this call-in show where people can call in use video blogs or, or video messages, text messages or whatever. All of these questions are then aggregated at this call-in center, as you can see it's from all around the country, and then Putin answers a selection of these live on the air. What's interesting about the direct line is how popular it is in the sense of like how widely known and how widely viewed it is. In its first year, about 70% of adults stated that they watched at least some of it live on the air. Well, this has decreased over time as it has become more routinized. So in one of my surveys, I asked about this in 2016, about 45% of people said that they watched some of the broadcast. This is still very large. Moreover, what's quite interesting is that even if only about half the population is watching it, Everybody knows about it. Only 1% stated that they had never heard of this before. So I want to put this a little bit in comparison to some of the other big events in Russia. 
So Putin's annual address to the Federal Assembly, as well as his annual press conference, the two other really big like speeches, typically pull in a viewership of between eight and on the very, very rare side up to 25%. So less than half of just a particularly low year for the direct line. Moreover, uh, the direct line has actually been voted by Russians in open-ended surveys as one of the most important events in the world in any particular year on three separate occasions, beating out Brexit, the World Cup, and Russia's own parliamentary elections. <laughs> so in other words, it's very well known. This is important for my study. But what sets participatory technologies such as the direct line apart from the traditional speeches from the president or news conferences, for example, is that they are explicitly portrayed as a genuine and credible form of voice, as a dialogue between leaders and their subjects, and as a source of feedback where people can actually have some sort of say in how the world and politics is run. So it's portrayed essentially as a way for people to solve their issues and concerns um, and have them addressed and receive feedback and information from the highest leader in the land. So essentially it all boils down to authorities are trying to demonstrate to the public that there is somebody who is there listening to them and who cares about their needs. And I talk a lot in the book about how this message is portrayed. Um, I don't really have time to go into that here but if you're interested, I'd be happy to talk more about that as well in the Q&A. There we go. So of course, the flip side of this is that it is not viewed by society, even though it's certainly portrayed by organizers as a form of voice, but rather it is simply viewed as yet another form of propaganda. So these are uh, from one of my um, um, interlocutors in the country, as well as a scrolling ticker that goes around and around and around on the direct line. And this is something we hear a lot, that ugh, the direct line is just a performance. It's just a way for Putin to go on and earn points for society. And it's really just some staged circus, that it's not actually real in some ways. So given this kind of polarizing views between people who see it perhaps as a form of voice and those who see it as simply as a form of propaganda, the question then is, is, so is this actually working as uh, organizers would like? So what purpose is it serving to regimes? And so I argue in the book that they serve, that these participatory technologies serve two main purposes. First, again, helping solve our problems of managing information as well as bolstering legitimacy. So let's start with information management and information problems. Um, authoritarian regimes, governments in general, have to have information about society and have to be able to manage the flow of information between elites and people on the ground as an important component of regime stability. So the first way that participatory technologies can help regimes manage information is by acting as a barometer of public opinion. Essentially as a way to gather information about the specific concerns and problems faced by society. 
Every year on the direct line, allegedly millions of questions get answered. Usually it's around three-ish or so million <laughs> that they say get asked. And if we take this as at face value, which perhaps we should not, um, this is a lot of information, right? It's a lot more information than regimes get from, say, public opinion polls, which can give you a general idea of what problems people have, or even elections, which can give you some gauge of popular um, public opinion, but not much more than that. Rather, these types of strategies give detailed information on trends over time and problems in particular places around the country so that authorities can identify and deal with these problems before they become destabilizing for regimes. The second is that they act as a monitoring and accountability of officials. More than just providing information about ordinary people's concerns, they also serve to bypass middle-level officials that perhaps don't want information about their behavior and how well or not well of a job that they are doing from reaching people at the very top. So by bypassing lower-level officials altogether, participatory technologies can, can provide information about their agents <coughs> on the ground um, and get the information they wouldn't have received otherwise. And I think the clearest illustration of how this works or how people perceive that this works is this meme um, that is my favorite image from the entire book um, and makes its rounds every year on social media. Mm -hmm. What it does is it portrays the speed at which different objects move. So a bullet is slower than the speed of light, which is still even slower than an official rushing to do his job ahead, fulfill his obligations, ahead of the direct line with Vladimir Putin, right? And so this was a common refrain I heard over and over and over again, is that officials only do their job when they know that we're talking about them to the president on the direct line. Um, one of my most favorite anecdotes was actually um, from a woman who went and she got her question actually asked on the direct line. It was about, uh, I think, like some issue with a payment. And she said, as the direct line was still airing, somebody comes up in a red Mercedes, screeches outside her window, yells, your payment has been processed, and takes off. Right? So it's like, okay, we have to finally do our job now because uh, Vladimir Putin is watching us. <laughs> and the last thing that the way that um, participatory technologies can help manage information is to help authorities control the political narrative and control the image making of the person that is portrayed. So of the allegedly millions of questions that get asked every year on the direct line, only a handful actually make its way up onto the broadcast, usually around 80 or so. But these are not by any means randomly chosen. Rather, they are specifically chosen by organizers to portray the particular issues that they want to discuss and essentially control the conversation around them. So if people have an issue with pensions, for example, which is a very common question, they can choose the question that allows them to spin the conversation the way they want it to be told. And so in my surveys, I specifically asked people, I was like, so what do you think the purpose of the direct line is? Why do, why do authorities bother with this in the first place? 
And what a large plurality of people actually say is that the purpose is for the government to actually inform people about what the government is doing, right? We have a problem about pensions. Don't worry, here is our five-point plan for dealing with pensions. They get to control the conversation. But it also acts in this particular regard as a way for Putin to portray himself and to help build his image. So I talk a lot about how the direct line portrays Putin as a problem solver and as a listener. Somebody who wants to hear from his people and is active in solving their problems. But ultimately, this doesn't tell us, do people buy into it? As a scholar of public opinion, this was, to me, the question that I really had to answer. I was like, this is kind of ridiculous in some ways, right? The president's getting on the TV for four hours, like I'm sitting here in a park, um, watching it on a big screen, and everybody's gathering around. I was like, do people buy into it? Or are they just seeing it as simply a form of propaganda? So the last question, and probably the main question for me that I try to answer in the book, is how does being aware of these types of participatory technologies, being aware that there are these opportunities, should people want to, to pick up the phone, talk to Putin, do they actually influence how people view both their own views of political efficacy, whether they think they have some say in politics, and also how they view the highest leader in the land, the person portrayed here? Um, Vladimir Putin. And so in order to answer these questions, I either conduct or was a, had the fortunate um, ability to jump on some existing surveys to ask people questions about the direct line. So the first one, um, our own Ted Gerber allowed me to add questions to his Comparative Housing Experiences and Social Stability Survey in 2015. And then I commissioned a survey with the Lovata Analytical Center, Russia's most premier research center, the year later. And in both of these surveys, I embedded what are called information timing experiments. And so I'm not going to, again, if you would like to learn about the details of this in the Q&A, happy to do so. But the purpose of these experiments is to see how reminding people about my phenomenon of interest, in this case, the direct line, influences people's attitudes. So I remind my treatment group about the direct line, don't mention it to my control group, and the difference between these two people's responses on approval of Putin and political efficacy can tell me how much of an impact it has. And what I find is that in general, just being aware of the direct line that these participatory technologies exist in the first place, so not participating in it, not calling it or watching it, but just knowing that it exists, has a positive impact on people's feelings of political efficacy they were more likely to think that the government cares about what people think. And furthermore, I saw that it improves approval of Putin. People who were primed to remember this program had more positive feelings. And what they saw here was a roughly a four percentage point increase. So say from 52% approval to 56% approval. That's about what we saw a bump after the Sochi Olympics. However, we would not necessarily expect everybody to buy into the message and to think about it in the same way. So I want to remind you and bring you back to this graph I showed you earlier. Well, it does seem like quite a few people do buy into this idea that the direct line is a way for people to talk about their concerns 
and a way for the government to inform people about their policy, a pretty large and growing number of people simply dismissed this as a way for Putin to improve his image. And these two views were very um, consistent in all of my um, interviews that I did. Well, you had some people like Maxime. Maxime is a mid-40s. He doesn't really vote or participate in politics. Um, and what he told me is that, yeah, I actually think the direct line is a way for Putin to know about problems directly from us, directly from the people who are experiencing them. And so that everybody can have that chance to call and talk about their problems. So Maxime probably fall into this group here, right? Andre, however, had a very different story. He is exactly one of these people who is like, this is just a performance. This is yet another form of propaganda that we are hearing all the time, and it's simply here to earn Putin points from society. <laughs> it's not real. So I asked, okay, so what personal characteristics are going to condition whether people think like Maxime or think like Andre? And so what I theorized was that people's level of political sophistication, so do they participate in politics, are they interested, are they politically engaged, as well as their pre-existing views of the regime, whether they're generally pro-regime or anti-regime, is going to influence how they perceive the direct line, which in turn is going to condition its impacts on their approval of Putin and perceptions of voice. And indeed, this is what I found. So first, I found that this impact we saw, this boost in a public approval and in political efficacy, was primarily amongst people who are already pro-regime, who are supporters of the regime, and people who have very low levels of political sophistication. These are the people who are not going out of their way to learn about politics and kind of are savvy political operators. So it primarily works for these groups. And indeed, it has no impact whatsoever for people who are very politically sophisticated. They're able to like glean from all of the, their political knowledge that this is you know, probably something more along the lines of propaganda. But what is really interesting and what was contrary to my original expectations is that awareness of the direct line actually decreases public opinion for those who are opponents of the regime, for those who don't really buy into the regime's method um, and ideas. Now, when I originally went and did my first uh, set of interviews back in 2014 and did these, um, these surveys, about 90% of the population fell into this more pro-regime camp. So in that case, the positive impact of these programs on this really large portion of the population was not going to be outweighed by the smaller group that had a backlash when they saw about the direct line. So it was generally beneficial to the government. But when I went back, I saw that this narrative was changing quite a bit. So these are from uh, some interviews back in 2019 that I commissioned. And what I found was that these skeptics, these people who are generally not buying into this idea that the direct line or is a form of voice, is increasing and has been increasing over time. You know, at this point, the direct line has gone on for 
22, it's going to be 22 years this year. And every year people were telling me that they asked the same questions over and over and over again. And yet nothing is changing, right? So as more people start seeing these programs as just a formality, are disappointed by the fact that despite they, the fact that they say this is a way for us to have a say in politics, nothing is happening, then the efficacy of these programs as a way to manage information and build legitimacy is going to wane. Now, I know I'm close to out of time, so I just very briefly want to talk about some of the broader implications of this. Now, one of the most common ways that authoritarian regimes come to power is right through the ballot box by people voting for them. It's also one of the ways that they can lose power. As a result, convincing the people that the government deserves to be there and is working on their behalf is a critical a part of regime durability. So the goal of my research is to understand how authoritarian regimes build opportunities for participation in order to shore up their regime. And importantly, whether and when these tactics are actually successful. So here I showed you a very specific example, right? This direct line. This is only one of a myriad of different types of participatory technologies that exist in both Russia and outside of the world. I mentioned a couple of these at the beginning of the presentation, but most countries in the world actually use them. So in future projects, I kind of dabble in these, uh, in these other um, instances in Venezuela and whatnot, want to expand this out and look more in a comparative perspective. And so often, and one of the things I put forward in the book is that so often when we study political participation as a general phenomenon, we typically only focus on participation or participants directly. But one thing is true basically everywhere is that few people are actively engaged in any meaningful way in politics. And moreover, what counts as participation or political engagement looks different in different contexts. So what I try to show is that the scope of impact of these types of strategies is much larger than many people might assume. So the people who were impacted by the direct line were not the people necessarily picking up the phone and calling in or being directly engaged, but rather people who had just heard of their existence. So that means that the potential impact is much broader that we need to expand our scope. But I also showed that you know not everybody is equally affected. To get back to my very original question at the very beginning, do these tactics work? The answer is, Yes, but only to a point. Participatory technologies are not over here converting critics of the regime and getting them on their side. Rather, what they are doing is they are reinforcing support among those that are already pre favorably predisposed to buy into the government's message. So as long as that group is a substantial portion of the population, then participatory technologies and all of the time and resources involved in them probably worthwhile for regimes. But because they ultimately polarize the population, the effic as discontent with regime grows, the efficacy of these strategies as tools of manufacturing consent is ultimately going to wane. Okay, so I will end with that so we can have enough time for questions. But thank you very much um, for listening, appreciate it.